And it would be helpful if you don't have a paper Bible. I, there are plenty in the cupboard, but I usually use my phone these days, so I hope you can turn to Galatians 4, because you shouldn't believe what I say just because I say it. You should be reading the scriptures for yourself and weighing up what I'm saying. I just want to say before we get started, um, I have never attended church here without shedding a tear, because what you have here is so special. A church gathered around the word, desiring to follow Jesus and encourage one another. And I understand that there are you know, issues and difficulties from time to time. That's totally normal in churches. But I've got to tell you, you have such a wonderful fellowship here. And uh, I'm so grateful to God for you guys. Well, on to Galatians 4. I don't know if you've ever found yourself at the centre of the world. Uh, my daughter married an Englishman during COVID, so we were recently in England for a fake wedding. It's a real marriage, but it was a fake wedding catching up after COVID. Um, and I found myself on one occasion at Paddington Station. And if you've ever been there, you'll know there's train lines to and from everywhere and just a short ride away. The, all over, there's so many people speaking so many different accents from all over uh, the UK and Europe and the world, actually. And I thought, if you got on the wrong train here, you might never find your way back home again. Um, all, all the people were kind of going towards the screens and I thought rugby training has been very helpful. I could Galatians 4, 1 to 11, is a little bit like that. All the different train lines coming together. All the different bits of Galatians come together in this passage, I think. And actually, best as I can see, every major biblical theme is here as well. Um, today we're covering the history of the world and uh, it goes back to the Old Testament, to creation and pagan religion and family relationships and the place of money in our lives, religious experience and a stack of other things. But basically what's going on in this passage is a contrast in three parts, slavery, freedom, slavery. And so this section's a bit like a sandwich, isn't it? Two bits of bread and a filling. So that's what I've called today our, our sandwich. I'm sorry if you're hanging out for lunch and that just reminds you all the more. The, the contrast is between life for God's people under the law, the slavery, and life for God's people in the spirit, freedom. And right at the center, uh, uh, this, this passage is right at the center of the reason that Paul is writing to the Galatians. I mean, as you know, as you've been part of the series here on Galatians, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from the church in Antioch to take the message about Jesus to the world, starting with the Jewish people. And you can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. And when you stop to think about it, that is just such a crazy thing to do, isn't it? I mean, for lots of reasons, but especially just, just stop and think. These two men, plus a couple of others, would dare imagine that by them speaking a message about a bloke to some people from a different ethnic group, from a place they've never been to, who is executed as a common criminal outside a city they've never visited, that he is the one true God's chosen person and the ruler of the world for eternity. And that them speaking that message is God's way of reaching the world. Which is ridiculous, isn't it? But that's what they did. And we've got to say, with mixed results, many became believers, but many others, and notably many Jewish people, rejected the message of Jesus as Messiah, and they were filled with jealousy and tried to shut Paul and Barnabas down. And Paul was just about stoned to death in Lystra. And you see, 
Um, this letter is not written out of some special academic area of interest. As Paul writes, he's writing to people caught up in the conflict that the gospel brings. People who are facing a perilous choice, whether to follow Jesus or to keep the peace and just follow the Old Testament law. Because if they would, then the persecution and jealousy would stop. Well, Paul's resounding answer to that voice is, no, don't do that. Because we are now in the age of the Spirit. And Paul says in this section of Galatians, don't go back to trying to win favour with God by obeying the Old Testament law, or you'll be a slave again. And we're going to unpack that sandwich, slavery and freedom and slavery. So let's look at the first bit of bread in verses 1 to 3. Now, there's a Greek word you're going to need to know, and I know you're not meant to mention Greek words in sermons, but look, you'll be able to go home today and say, we covered the whole history of the world, and I learned a new Greek word. <laughs> this word, stoikeia, is a difficult word to translate, and that's one of the reasons I want to introduce you to it. It's a really important word in our passage. It's translated elementary principles in verse 3, if you can see that there in the ESV. Uh, you might say it's the basic way the world works. It's there again in verse 9, too. Uh, now, in these first three verses, Paul covers the entire history of the Old Testament people of God. Listen, I mean, that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under gardens, guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And this is continuing uh, the imagery from the previous chapter, although there's a slight variation here. Um, it, it, what Paul's saying is that imagine you're a boy or a girl who's grown up in a wealthy family, and that, that might be some of us here today, but the thing is, your life is divided into two stages, isn't it? Before you're 18 and afterwards, because while you're 18, even though it's all your stuff, you kind of feel like a slave. Don't do that, la. Do this, pa. Is that right? You're in a, in a nice home and you take nice holidays. But the day has not yet come when those nice things belong to you. And the apostle says, that was the situation of God's people before Jesus came along. They were under the instruction of the law in school, learning the ABCs, do this, don't do that, waiting for the day when they turn 18 and take possession of everything. And that's where these elementary principles of the world come in, Right? Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. These words, elementary principles. That's the stoikeia word. Now, in Greek literature, it can mean a whole lot of things. Shadows, syllable, ABCs. And so we need to use our context here to understand what it means. And here I think it means just the ABCs of the world, the way the world works, the basic principles. God gave the law to teach Israel these basic principles, the spiritual realities of the world in which we live. And I think we've already seen that in chapter 3. And I want to suggest the words of uh, legendary Bob Dylan help us at this point. Um, the elementary principles amount to this. As a human, you've got to serve somebody, Right? If you want a kind of basic definition of the, the, the impact of these elementary principles, that's your place in the world. You've got to serve somebody. You're not the strongest in the universe. There's things you've got to follow, ways, of, ways you've got to live. And uh, because of that, because of our human weaknesses, 
there's a kind of way of looking at life in this world that's slavery. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you, you, you know it's, it's a ripper. And if you haven't read it, you should do it. It doesn't take long. I read it during the week. It's a massive object lesson in the fundamentals of the world where everything, physical and non-physical, is filled with spiritual meaning, from how you do your harvest down on the farm to how you cut your hair. That's easier for some than others, of course. Uh, from, from how you deal with skin rashes and what kind of foods to eat, from sexual ethics to how you have a party at different times of the year. And in the book of Leviticus, God gives his people the law while they camped around him at Mount Sinai. Uh, they've been rescued to serve him. And he's teaching them that all the world is centred around him and he's the one there to serve. He's rescued them to serve him. But the problem with serving him is that he's holy and that to be near him, things and people need to be special or holy. And sin pollutes things in the world, things and people, and they can't be made holy again but only by the sacrifice of a life. And the whole system of sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep and birds and grain and wine was a daily physical reminder of the basic principles of the world, the deadly effects of sin and the rescue from sin that God, had, God has uh, uh, brought. And the problem is, like Paul's argued earlier in Galatians, by the works of the law, no one will be justified because of our human weaknesses. And so being under the law is the same as being in slavery. You've got to keep repeating these things over and over and over again. And here's the thing for us who are not Jewish, by and large, just looking around, it's just a guess, but I, I might be right. There's nothing intrinsically unclean, you'll be glad to know, about eating pork or prawns or bears or bats. But God said these things in the law, in the whole matrix of the law, to teach Israel a deeper lesson, who he is, and that they are to serve him at that time. And by the way, don't make the mistake of thinking that those people back then were just kind of a bit simple-minded, so God made it simple for them, and really we've, you know, we're kind of a bit smarter. Um, what God's done is to, sh is to uh, get Israel ready until they, were t until they turned 18 um, and came to inherit all theirs, get them ready for the freedom that was coming. Whenever someone in ancient Israel had acne or touched a dead body or sinned in some way, they'd go to the priests and the priests would recite their sins over the animal and then sacrifice it and their separation from God would be covered over or atoned for and they longed for the day when God would do something monumental, a monumental sacrifice, when he'd do something once for all to release them from being under these ABCs, the elementary principles of the world, uh, under the law because of their fallen nature. God's people are no different to slaves. And that's the first bit of bread, if you like. Um, uh, now let's, what's in the centre? What's the meat of the sandwich? Except we can't say meat anymore, can you? What's the protein-rich plant-based filling? <laughs> well, verses 4 to 7... Uh, Paul speaks about the most important event since the creation of the world when Israel turned 18 and gained possession of what God had promised them. And it's all about redemption. And Paul says uh, two things. Firstly, though, that redemption came through substitution. 
verses 4 to 5, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoption as a son, as sons. There's the redemption language. Now, there's a lot of things going on in these few verses, and you really can't separate them out. But basically, it's all about what Jesus did. Our freedom, Paul says, began with a mighty substitution. We were under the law with a constant reminder of our weakness, and it was slavery every time you needed to go back to the priest. It was in your face that the previous sacrifice was only a temporary solution. But Jesus Christ was sent to us under the law and the legal requirements we needed to keep repeating to redeem us from under the law, to rescue us, to buy us back out from under it. You see, the sending of Jesus was a mighty miracle bringing freedom. Jesus was miraculously sent from heaven. And we don't have any time to stop and think about this, but God became a human. There was a time when Jesus wasn't human, but then he became a human, and he's a human for all eternity now. And he was born of a woman with all our weaknesses and temptations. But notice at the beginning of verse 4 when it happened in the fullness of time. See, Paul's point here is that for a time, God made a covenant with his people, the Old Testament law, with Moses, but that was not his final objective. Do you see that? In the fullness of time, that would no longer be over Israel. It would no longer be the sacrifices of his people under that covenant that would justify them and allow them to draw, draw near to God. Jesus' perfect obedience to the law and therefore his perfect death and his sacrifice on the cross, that's how God would redeem his people ultimately from being under the slavery to the law. And not just under the repetition of the law, but under the judgment of the law. Out from having to keep repeating the same sacrifices over and over in order to be able to approach God. And that means now, after Jesus, after Jesus' work for us, our entire spiritual reality and hope has been transformed. Because now, instead of having an arm's length relationship with God, established by the law, we're his sons and daughters. We've been adopted into his family. And we're free to run into the presence of God at any time, not because of my obedience or my sacrifices, not depending on what we've done, but depending on what our brother has done, the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing God did. He sent his son to redeem those under the law, but there's more. And this, I think, is the game changer there in verses 6 to 7. God sent his spirit. And the reason I say it's a game changer is because up to this point in Galatians, get this, get this, up to this point in Galatians, God's been speaking through Paul about what he's done out there. But at this point, how does that change? Now he speaks about what he does in here, right? What God does for us, and now he turns to what God does in us. And look, I'm very conscious that I cannot begin to express how special this is. Verse 6, because your sons, sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, Abba was 
No, not the 70s pop group. I know that's what comes to mind first for some of you, but Abba was the private, intimate form of address between the Lord Jesus and the Father, right? And it's a word that reminds us of Jesus' special, intimate relationship with his Father and God's fatherly goodness towards his children, which is ours now too. You see, in the sending of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, and it's the same Greek word, by the way, God does not merely secure our sonship according to the ABCs that Israel already knew, according to an external legal basis, but he's given us an inward, constant down payment of his approval towards us. Some of the problems of the Old Testament law, or the system of law, were in the internal realm. That is, the law didn't have the power to change hearts. We read that in our Ezekiel reading, didn't we? The problem that Israel had was that they didn't actually want to do what God wanted. Nothing wrong with the law. They didn't want to do it. But also, the law, per se, could not deal with the persistent question of all law keepers, have I done enough? And the attendant question, have I done the right things? Now just as an aside here, I have a number of good friends who are Roman Catholic. And when I listen to their experience, my observation is that in the quiet moments of reflection, these are their questions as well. They're not quite sure if they've done enough for God to accept them. And they're not quite sure if they've done the right things. But don't think I'm pointing the finger. Because that is my experience of people who've grown up in the Anglican scene too. Paul says, God's purpose in sending his Holy Spirit into our hearts is that our relationship with God might be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Now our cry is that of Jesus, Abba, Father. Because the Spirit persuades us that Jesus' death is not just out there, but it was for me and for you and for everyone who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus. This is at the very centre of the contrast in this passage, this, this sandwich here. You, you know it's what God wants most for you, don't you? It's always been his intent in creating us. It's why he made you, why he made me. He didn't intend you to be a robot only ever doing what you were told. He didn't make you to be in a constant state of anxiety, fearing him, constantly wondering if you've done enough to meet his standards, but to have personal communion, friendship, loving relationship where you know you're loved by him 
and where your relationship is not subject to your own inability to hold the line. Not subject to the pride that comes from the times when we do hold the line, when we do do what's right. But where all your hopes and dreams and loves and strength is caught up with him because of what he's done for you in the Lord Jesus, in his redemption of you. And you know, God doesn't do that. Send Jesus and send his spirit into us so that we can say, oh great, now what are the rules I've got to follow? Go off and find another set of stoicheia or even go back to the old set of rules. See, in Jesus, God does not give us just a massive sacrifice or just give us righteousness or merely adoption as his children or just take our sins away, as important as all those things are. And they are important. But it gives us the living reality of his spirit, the spirit of his son, in us, directing us to what he's done in Jesus. His anger is turned away. He is satisfied with Jesus' self-giving, self-offering. As the son cried out on the cross, it's finished! So you can enjoy him and cry out to him, no matter what you're going through, Abba Father. You know, all the purposes of God since, crea since the creation of the world bend along this ark the Spirit of God living in you. Remember Genesis? You know, God didn't make people because he was lonely, but because he desired relationship. Augustine said, Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's why God made Israel. So that through the people of Israel, he'd bring this rest, this blessing, this dwelling with God to all the nations. Listen to Leviticus chapter 26, in the middle of the giving of the law. Listen to what God says, his purpose is. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people. Do you see? That's been God's purpose all along. He's made you for relationship with, you, with himself. Not based on what you do, but on what he does for you. And, you know, that's what it is to be a Christian. A Christian isn't a person who, you know, walks into a church building. You don't become a hamburger because you walk into McDonald's, do you? Or a car because you walk into a garage, right? What makes people think they become a Christian by walking into a church? A Christian is someone who's got a relationship with God based on what he's done for them. To have the Spirit of God in our hearts crying passionately, Abba, Father. And you know, people who, who are outside of Christ got no idea what we're talking about at this point, right? But the person who's been a Christian for even 30 seconds knows the love of God in their heart, right? We need to move on from this high point. I'd love to spend more time there teasing it out, but we can't. So let's move on to our second bit of bread. The Stoicheia in verses 8 to 11. Because you see, the Galatians had only recently become people who trusted in Jesus. And they'd become that from a pagan background. And, you know, it was, it was in Galatia, the region of Galatia, that Paul first underwent deadly, sustained persecution from the Jewish elite. And so they turned to the Gentiles with the gospel, Paul and Barnabas. 
But now, some time later, the Galatians are being pressured by a new bunch of leaders who'd come from Jerusalem to turn back to the things of the Jewish law. You believe in Jesus the Messiah, that's fine, that's great. But if you really want to make sure that you're in with God, uh, you're missing out unless you also take on the Jewish law. And you know, there are things in these next few verses which I just think are so it's so extraordinary, they're almost too difficult to believe. Because Paul says, if you go back to the law as a way of growing in the spirit, you might as well become a pagan and worship pagan gods again for all the good it'll do you. Verse 8. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid of labour of you in vain. You hear the passion, passion in Paul's voice there. Because the reality, verse 8, was that before the Galatians came to Christ, they worshipped pagan gods. They were under the stoicheia. You know, you've got to serve somebody. They thought that by serving these pagan gods, they could get the world to be the way they wanted it to be. And they were in the same situation as Israel. Same, same, but different, if you know that saying. Israel was under the law given by the one true God, but the Galatians, by nature, according to the Stoicheia, were enslaved to non-gods. You know, that's why even the greatest religious or moral teachings in the world, apart from the Spirit, is slavery to the Stoicheia, because there is no God apart from the good God, who's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul calls these principles that the Galatians were under weak and worthless. I mean, the pagans knew some of the truth, and everybody knows this to some extent. They are not the greatest force in the universe. You've got to serve somebody. I mean, it's something that our, at least in Australia, our modern constructivist thought leaders would do well not to assume once in a while. But the pagans falsely believed that behind everything in the world there was a God at work. The earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and uh, all these things have moral principles attached to them. Kindness to neighbour and duty to society and respect of elders and families and virtues. And, and I think, you know, we're all familiar with people who approach the world like this, you know, who are superstitious and think there's power in some kind of thing around them, a plant or a rock or a tree. And I think it's partly an explanation for why non-Christians can be such good people, so moral. Some people close to me, they are such good people. But they don't believe in Jesus. But they do follow rules about what's good. And the Galatians were not Jewish like Paul, but Paul says your pagan worship puts you in the same situation as those under the law, slavery, but to non-gods. But to those whom God gives the Spirit, you're in a completely different situation. And one of the reasons for this is that we have what's, what the scholar Constantine Campbell calls volitional power. Remember the problem with the Old Testament law was that it couldn't change hearts. God said, a time's coming, I'll, I'll make a new covenant where I'll give you a new spirit. I'll put my spirit in your heart, I'll give you a new heart, and you'll want to do what I want. 
This is volitional power. When you know someone, you want to do what they want. You know, I make rules at home. Let me tell you, my kids don't follow the rules because I like rules. They follow the rules because they love me. I think the great temptation for us as religious people, and if you don't think of yourself as a religious person, you're in church, so you are, okay? Our great temptation is that somehow by obeying rules and doing religious practices, somehow that's going to kind of make up for any deficit that's going to bring us closer to God. They will give us a heart to obey God. Or we'll get more of the Holy Spirit by doing these things. And when it comes to celebrating days and seasons and months, which we do as Anglicans, don't we? I mean, if they become a necessary part of my worship, my growth in God, and then I've just gone back to being a slave to the elementary principles again. Let me show you something. If you've got a Bible there, turn back to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, because this is where Paul uses that stoichia word again. Colossians 2 verse 8. And he says, see to it, Colossians 2, 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. There's that word again, the stoichia, elemental spirits, and not according to Christ. See, when you, when you stop and step back a little bit and think about what's going on for the Galatians, there is a certain kind of wisdom from the teachers in Jerusalem, isn't there? And you can get the powers of the world on side by doing these things. You can try and make yourself feel better by doing the law. Um, and, you know, after all, God gave the law to the Old Testament people, and you won't have conflict with them if you do that. There's a certain kind of wisdom. But you can get the finest religious practices of all the world's religions, all the best moral teachings, and, and lots of that we'd agree with, and you can try and practice it, but Paul says that has no power to reveal God to us. You can't get to know God better. It can't bring you into relationship with God. It cannot take away sins. It cannot give you access to the Holy Spirit. And Paul says the same thing in verse 16, Colossians 2, 16. So don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, he concludes, if you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, there's that word again, stoichia, why is if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle. And if this was a truly Malaysian translation, you know it would have la there. Do not handle la, do not taste la, do not touch la. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see what he's saying? The rules, I mean, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with rules. It's just that it's not where the action is. There's nothing wrong with having a yearly religious calendar like we do. It's just that those things cannot mediate the Holy Spirit to you. That's why we cannot say to ourselves or each other, I need to celebrate Lent this year or God won't be happy with me. Nor can we say that you must not celebrate Lent. It's just 
just not where the action is. Both observing and not observing are impotent to provide the Holy Spirit to us unless they come out of faith. Or if I can borrow Jesus' example from Luke 18, two guys go up to the temple to pray and only one of them goes home justified. Why? Well, for one, it's a self-justifying exercise in diary obedience. But for the other, it's the opportunity to cry, Abba, Father. See, there are two ways to put ourselves back under slavery, under these elemental principles. One's idolatry and immorality. And the other is by religion and morality. And the Apostle says the Galatians are doing the latter. You're following religious rules and moral codes. And you know, you can be an ethical, orthodox, evangelical Christian in what you believe, but be just as enslaved as a pagan who worships a rock, says the Apostle. And it's a devastating and radical truth that he's speaking here. Can I say a great deal of what masquerades as Christian devotion is actually just the same slavery to the elemental spirits? Just another 30 seconds. If, you see, if, if anything, is essential to me, gets a controlling interest in me, something that I give my time and my desires and energies with no effort to, anything can be an idol and take the place of God in my life. And idols are not usually terribly ob obvious and wicked things. They're usually good things that have begun to take his place. But when the good becomes the best, it becomes a deity. And it's because it's not the true God. That's why freedom cannot ultimately come from religion and moral effort, but only through faith in Christ. Because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Back to Galatians to finish off. Because in verse 9, Galatians 4.9, Paul says, Our situation in Jesus is categorically different to paganism. Verse 9, now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, see, what really counts is not my knowledge of God, is it? But him knowing me. Not my experience of him, which is very important, as we've seen, but the fact that he set his love on me. Christ was sent to rescue us, redeem us from under the law. Effort and performance, they're of no real value. They do not rescue me from my idols. But that's what the Galatians are being tempted to turn back to, verse 9b. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once again? What matters ultimately, you see, is not my effort, but what God thinks of me. And if I want to know what God thinks of me, and you want to know what God thinks of you, then the only place you need to look is the cross. See, my knowledge of God in myself goes up and down with the seasons and the months and what I have for breakfast. But God's is fixed. It doesn't go up and down. The only thing that has the power to break my addictions to my idols is not my observance or performance. The only thing is the Spirit of Christ in my heart pointing me to the cross so that I cry, Abba, Father, relying on him, trusting him. And as my idol comes along and sings to me that siren song, worship me, I cry, Abba, Father. 
and look at the cross. God has put his spirit in our hearts to give us the will to please him. And no law can give that. The Father has given us his spirit by faith. So he continues to give us his spirit today, by faith, today and every day, until we see him face to face. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you know what we need and you've given us your Son. And through your Son, your Spirit who testifies to your goodness. And so we cry, Abba Father, have mercy.